Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are guests or are new to us. Really glad you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. Um, no, I did not get hit in the eye. Uh, this is a, an eye-black, iconic version of the word Indiana because that's my alma mater. It's a sticker you can put on your eye right there because it's Campus Sunday. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> so folk were wanting to know what was wrong with my eye as I was walking through the... the uh, did you get hit, Pastor? Did somebody not like the gospel you presented? Did, <laughs> what happened? <clears throat> no, it says Indiana. Turn with me over to the book of Acts. We're going to look at chapter 17, and we're going to end our series on mission today. Our mission is threefold, to encounter Christ, to experience community, and then to extend the kingdom. And today we're going to talk about the extension of the kingdom after having for the last two weeks talked about what it, what it means to encounter Christ and extend, <clears throat> excuse me, experience community. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. The title of the message is Extend the Kingdom, Making God Known. It says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from, from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth, having determined their, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Verse 27, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his children. Verse 29, being then children of God, we ought to think that the divine nature is, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Lord, help as we study your word. Three things on this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, what it means to examine your culture well. Two, what it means to engage your culture well. And three, what it means to exhort your culture well. Paul is in Athens. And Athens is one of the, the most central places of worship in all of the Roman Empire. A major temple there with the pantheon of gods that we know to be mythical in their orientation, Apollos, 
Zeus, Hermes, Diana. And it would be the practice of most Romans whenever they wanted to approach their particular god on the basis of whatever need they had because those particular gods only served a particular need. They couldn't do everything. So if you wanted uh, a baby and you didn't have one, you go to the goddess Diana and talk to her about that. And you'd light a candle and you'd give a sacrifice and you'd say a prayer and walk away. None of their gods could do everything. And Paul is in Athens, this central place of polytheistic worship. And he's doing what he can to try to help them understand who the God of heaven is. Now, Paul's standard operating procedure when he went into a city was to first find the synagogue or people who had some background in who God was, though they may not have understood who Jesus was, and that they may have been Jewish in their heritage or had some Jewish lineage, some background with respect to the Hebrew traditions. He would try to find them, and then on the basis of that, he would leverage the influence they have in the city and then expand and create the church. In Athens, whether he wasn't able to find anybody or they didn't have a, a functioning synagogue, I'm not quite sure. The latter would surprise me, and the synagogues were all over the Roman Empire. But we see him taking a different tact in trying to minister to the Athenians and that he goes to their temple, people who have no clue about who God is or who Jesus is. No clue, no background, no Old Testament, no understanding of Moses, nothing. And he tries to leverage the moment in order to present the gospel to them in a way that makes sense. And here we see a beautiful picture of what it's like for us to go into environments that are really virgin in their orientation. There's nothing that has been sown. The ground is fallow. Nobody's put a plow spiritually into it. You're the first one who's about to plant a seed. How do you do it? This is, this is a really good prescription, a great template. He comes in and he, he sees their, the things that they concentrate on, their worship, the things upon which they, they uh, depend, and he looks at everything and then he sees this one altar to an unknown God. Huh. This is the only thing in their order of worship that doesn't have a name. <laughs> I got something. Now, we need to posture ourselves like Paul every day of our lives. We may never be as good as he was. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that none of you will be as effective or as fruitful as Paul. Best apostle best missionary, best preacher, best teacher, best epistle writer, best everything. Maybe the best Christian who has ever been. But, but we can at least approximate his effectiveness by trying to employ the things that he employed in hopes of gaining the same kind of results. Why do we want to reinvent the wheel? He, somebody's done this before. Many times the issue is not how in the world can we do it, it's are we even interested to do it? Is there anything on the inside of us that wants to make change in our environments? When you go to work, are you trying to figure out, Lord, show me their version of an altar to an unknown God. Show me something in this person's heart 
my employer's heart, my coworker's heart. Show me something that gives me the privilege of leveraging your truth on the basis of what they don't know, but they know something. They don't know it all. Help me to fill in the blanks. Is there anything on the inside of us that is trying to do that? Because Paul, when he went into a city, was trying to figure out how can I extend the kingdom of God? How can I make what I know to be true expand beyond me and impact people for his glory? We need to to think missionary all the time. Not to be thinking the missionaries are folks only who we send to the mission field like India or Africa. But every one of you need to think of yourself as a missionary when you get up and go to work. That's an environment to which God is sending you. No less significant than somebody who goes and preaches the gospel overseas. Different impact in that they may be called in a way you are not. They may have a greater capacity for growth in terms of winning disciples, but the same responsibility you have that they have because you are called to be a witness for him. We are all called to be emissaries for this kingdom. We are all called to be ambassadors of his goodwill. And none of us is exempt from that. You may not have hands laid on that somehow ordain you into a specific function, but you still have a responsibility before God. To preach this message. Are you with me? Excuse me, comma. Um, It is really critical that all of us figure out what we are called to do. I beg you, there are people that go to the grave without any idea of why they were placed on the planet. So you need to seek them with respect to that. Some of you are are in a business and, and, and you're doing well, but you're doing so well you don't feel any jostling to do anything else. Now, I didn't speak this in either of the other services. This is just for you. Somebody's listening. Some of you are called to preach this gospel, but you have not yet allowed him the privilege of dropping that seed in your heart because you're afraid to do it. And when I say called to preach the gospel, I'm saying called to do it like I do it in some capacity. And I'm begging you, hear from God and don't miss out on this wonderful opportunity. Having said that, I'm going back. So, commercial over. (laughs) All of us are called to minister this message. Every one of us are responsible to do it. And I'm begging you, feel the responsibility that God has actually placed you in a spot where the kingdom cannot be advanced by Pastor Brett. I don't show up in your workplace. You think maybe if I did, it would work better. I doubt it because they'd all wonder, what are you doing here? (laughs) Go home. Do what you do someplace else. God has put you there. And so we need to figure out how do we do this examine thing? Paul said he examined everything that was important to the Athenians. And he came up with this thing. You need to observe to try to find out what it is you might leverage for the progress of the gospel. You need to have a mindset toward that end. And in your observance, you would do well not to become a consumer, but but stay an observer. Part of the reason you don't observe as well as you should is because you're too busy consuming. You're enjoying whatever you're living in so much that you, you don't see that it might be an opportunity to leverage for the kingdom. You just want to be a part of the crew. You, you, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different. You want to be relevant. And hopefully they'll just see the light of Jesus coming out of me. 
problem is this. You're doing the same thing everybody else is doing. You show up to the dinner party with the mindset of carousing and fraternizing and drinking just like everybody else. I don't have a problem with alcohol. None. You want to drink? Enjoy. There are parameters the scripture has, but I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with atmosphere sometimes. And that the atmosphere that you may be enjoying might be unconducive to your presentation of the gospel. And you become a consumer rather than an observer. And you're not looking for the opportunity. And, and, and really, a happy hour is the saddest moment of the day. It's when people can get drinks half off so they can double up and feel really bad after they finish about trying to make themselves feel really good. And then talking to people that have no answers. (laughs) They call it happy hour, really? What is happy about it? How do you approach these moments? At dinner parties where everybody's enjoying themselves. And after about an hour into it, you can feel people beginning to loosen up. The problem is you've loosened up with them. And so you're all at the same spot and you have no opportunity for ministry. And as they are beginning to share with you their problems because their soul is now an open gate and it's just pouring out. You don't even have the wherewithal, the mindset to say, can I pray with you about that? It's not a work time. It's a dinner party. So you can do what you want. Can I pray with you about that? I realize your son is 16 and it's really hard on you, but God loves him and God loves you, and there's a solution here. Let's come to the Lord and pray. You pray a 15-second prayer. God, please help her. Give her wisdom on how to, to deal with her son and help him open his eyes that he might see who you are and bring him to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You walk away from the moment. The person for, for whom you just prayed just goes... They don't know what to do with that. They were just brought in the presence of God, and they don't even know how they got there. They sober up in a hurry. Just, oh, there seems to be an aura about you I didn't notice before. (laughs) There's this light that's coming out of you. And you know what that becomes? A great opportunity then for you to leverage tomb or altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you what that light is. Let me tell you what you see. And then you begin to minister the gospel to them. Do you see how easy? You didn't have to have a seminary degree to do that. You just have to love people and make sure that you aren't a consumer of the culture, but an observer of the culture, that you're different. You're always posturing yourself to be somebody who's looking for the opportunity for the gospel to be presented through you rather than enjoying the environment. And right now, most Christians enjoy the environment too much. So much that they cannot tell you are a Christian. You become so relevant that you are now a chameleon. You fit in beautifully. They can't even see. You've turned blue, green, red, whatever color that is necessary. That's who you are because you want to be relevant. And you make no difference at all. Now, please do not think that the the idea of being different is synonymous with weird. Don't do stupid. Just don't do stupid. But you can be somebody who makes sense to them 
the first Christian they've ever heard that actually makes sense. And this is what Paul did. He made sense to these Athenians who had never heard of Jesus. And in 15 minutes, people repented. To whom do you make that kind of sense? I beg you, take inventory of your life and begin to examine well your culture so that you can insert the gospel in it. Secondly, he began to engage the culture. Once he understood that there was this altar, altar, it's evident that he had something in the background that nobody knew what he was bringing to the table that he could leverage now as greater truth about who this God was to whom they had built an altar. So Paul came to the party with something. He had some information to give them. He had studied beforehand. He had been in an apologetic seminar, which we hold. Apologetic simply means a defense for the faith, the thing that you believe. He'd been in those. He'd been to church regularly and heard his pastor talk about what it means to, to, to leverage a moment like that. He had, he had read his Bible like every day. Read your Bible. Every day. He'd read his Bible because there's nothing in the Bible that you haven't gone through. At some point, if you read that thing, somebody's been through what you're going through. And they did it either really bad, which gives you an example of what not to do, or they did it really well, which gives you an example of what to do. But there's nothing in the Bible that doesn't help you. Everything in there. You read it every day, you're going to come out with better understanding of how to respond to situations that you otherwise would have no clue about. You come prepared to the moment so you can have that moment that Paul had. Here you have tomb. Uh, to, I keep saying to him, here you have altar to an unknown God. And you, you, you don't know exactly what you're worshiping. Therefore, let me enlighten you. There ought to be a therefore in all of your explanations. When you come to a moment where you, you, you've observed, you ought to get to the therefore in a hurry. Let me tell you what this means. And he began to talk to them about life and how important it was and who this God was. Now, if you read some stories, and it's hard for me to piece everything together, there was a moment in the Athenian culture, in their history, where they had this unusual uh, a drought that had turned into a famine. It lasted really long, and there was a prophet, not Bible, just a guy that came through and began to talk to them about what they needed to do. And the city responded to his message, and rain came. And they didn't know who the prophet was or who he represented, and, and they didn't know what God did it. And so they created this altar. They said, we can't just ignore it. We're going to create an altar to an unknown God. The beauty was that Paul may not have understand all the impetus behind why they created the altar, but he had a therefore. And you need to have a therefore if you want to be somebody who's relevant to the culture. And he said, therefore, understand this. And then he begins to exhort them that this God to whom you built an altar, let me tell you who he is. He's a God who can't be contained by temples. Can't hold them like that. In fact, nothing that is, that is created can hold this God. He's outside of everything he created. Cannot be contained. The beauty of our God is that he is infinite in his being and he is eternal with respect to his creation, meaning there was none. He's been before time. He will be after time. 
There's never a time where he has not been. And he is outside of that which he has created. And the universe is like really big. It's like really big. Most of us use solar system, galaxy, and universe interchangeably because we don't understand how big the universe is. Our solar system makes up our eight, maybe nine planets. Pluto goes in and out. They keep reclassifying that little planet out there that, that's in the, 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 the media, uh, asteroid belt. That sort of, anyway. Eight or nine planets. That's our solar system. Our galaxy is much broader and has many solar systems, has 200 billion stars like ours. And ours is one that's classified as kind of medium. And then there are like two that we've counted, 200 billion galaxies in our universe. The universe is really big, really big, really big. And God created it all. When he said light be, it hasn't stopped. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. It is still going. And wherever it goes, it dispels the darkness and more universe is created. Now, your question is, well, into what is the universe going? When there, at some point, there wasn't universe in this spot, and then there became universe. Well, what was the spot that became universe? I don't know. And nobody does. It's too far away for us to figure it out. But our God is bigger than that. He's infinite. And you want a God like that, it gives you security. Because he is so big that there's nothing he can't handle. There's nothing outside of him. It's all contained within his sphere of authority. Can't be put in temples. Can't be put in temples. Secondly, he said this God... He, 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 can't, he, can't be, he can't be worshipped with, with idols. You, you, you can't make this statue thing. And, 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 and please understand that the best way God thought to put his image on the earth was that every man came from one man. From every blood, he created one man. Uh, and, 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 and these men had their habitations and their spots and their places where they ought to be. And this was the best version of how he thought mankind ought to be. And, and, and he made them in the image of God. Yet when you create your images of God, you demean his image by making him less than even the image he thought about creating that could show what the world was supposed to be, him. So we are supposed to be his image on the earth and then man goes out and takes a rock, carves it up, molds it in, puts eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, mouths that cannot speak, and says, that's God. Paul says, do not demean him by making something lower than what he created to be his image on the earth and thinking that that's God. It's lower than even us in that it's, it's inanimate, number one, and then we create it. He cannot be demeaned by, by fashioning an idol and then trying to worship it. Don't do that. He created man to be his image on the planet. The problem is that when, when man fell, we've been trying to figure out what that looks like. <laughs> and it's been really hard because we are so not like him. We're selfish. He's giving. We're mean. He's kind. Oh, man, mean. I mean, the stuff I read 
that people say about folks on the internet. It's just horrible. And they are the same people who will quote the only scripture in the Bible they know. <laughs> Judge not, <laughs> lest you be judged. The level of hypocrisy is just off the charts. Where is mercy? Does it exist? How can you blast somebody that you don't even know simply because you want to sound pithy on the internet and get more followers? What the heck is wrong with you? This is our humanity. We can't find God in human beings because we are so messed up. And so we have then figured out a way to say, well, we're really messed up, so maybe if we create this image that doesn't, doesn't sin, that that will be a better way of us determining who God is when it's all backwards. The idea is this, not to fashion something out of an inanimate object to look like God, but to have God refashion us to look like him. That's why the born-again experience is so important. We are so flawed that we must die. We can't be fixed. We can't be refurbished. The house has to be demolished. And God has to start over from the foundation. Brett, Brett was, was, was not just a fixer-upper. Brett was a house to be condemned. I hadn't knocked off a 7-Eleven. I hadn't treated women bad. I didn't even curse. But I was a chief of sinners. And God had to remake me all over again because there's nothing about the old bread that could combine with the new bread and help. God had to allow me to go to the cross, privileged me to die so that he could live on the inside of me and remake me. He probably could have done a much better job without me meaning I've gotten in the way. My selfishness, my idea about how life ought to go has been an inhibitor of his progress. And for that, I'm sorry. But I am working every day, as best I know how, to get better than I was the day before. And this, hopefully, process of transformation and renewal, not just reformation, because reformation is just behavioral modification, that's all. Transformation is, is change from the inside. In the Greek, it's the word metamorpho, <clears throat> metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. And it, it's supposed to liken to what a, a caterpillar does. You remember the second grade, second grade experiment you did with the... Oh, come on. They still do it, don't they? You put the caterpillar in the aquarium. You get a branch with some leaves on it. He eats for two weeks. And then all of a sudden, you can't come back the next morning, and, and there's this cocoon, and the caterpillar is gone. And then two weeks later, all of a sudden, come, something comes out that doesn't look anything like the caterpillar. Do you know what happens in that, that cocoon, that chrysalis? It's stunning. It's called histolysis, where the caterpillar itself turns to blah. If you were to put a pin in it and break it open, goop would fall out. There are only a couple of cells that remain from what the caterpillar was, and they are, I guess, best likened to our stem cells, and they begin to direct all the chemicals that are remaining to become what they need to become. 
It's not like the caterpillar just grows wings and loses legs and puts on more legs. It becomes nothing on the inside and then becomes something on the inside. Are you listening to me? That's what metamorphosis, transformation is to be for us. That we become nothing in order to become what God intended. It can't be just an addition of a principle. We can't just take the house we have and say, Lord, I'd like to build you on a little, little, little wing. And I'll come and worship you once a week in that wing. But most of the time, I'm going to live over here. It doesn't work like that. You raise the house, R-A-Z-E, and let him erect something different. The process is one that allows us a privilege of really helping people understand who God is in the earth. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve really were? I mean, remember, they were made in the image of God. And the Lord, the Lord amplified those words by saying, in our image and in our likeness. So there's something about them, both inside and outside, that reminded each of them what God looked like. So when they saw, when Adam saw Eve, he said, oh, I see God so much more and different than I ever saw him than before you came. Wow. And when Eve saw Adam, you're amazing. You make me worship him. The way you are, how kindly you speak to me. Your sensitivity, your tenderness, your strength and protection. Oh, they remind me of how God helps me. That's the way it was supposed to be. And it was knee jerk. They didn't have to sit around and look for it. You know, I don't know why in the world God compliments any of us and encourages us. I ain't got a clue. We do most things wrong. And yet he encourages us all the time. Good job. Great job, Brett. You did an excellent job preaching. Yeah, but I'm this and that. I don't have my good job. And by the way, that's just a little extra on your children. They, they, they might mess up eight out of seven days. <laughs> they might. They might. But your job is to look for the moments of encouragement. Um, Sweetheart, I I really like the way you sit in that chair. (laughs) You got to find something sometimes. There may not be anything you see, but you got to find stuff. And God finds stuff in you. Because there's not much because of Adam that looks like him. Not much you do that acts like him. But he finds stuff. And may I say that I'm not exaggerating on that. Because if he were to tell you everything you do wrong, you'd die. You'd die from discouragement. Thinking I'll never get out of this. He's called me to this and I'm that. We don't even know how messed up we are. We don't know. And he shields us from our own flaws most of the time and encourages us in the process of whatever we're doing with respect to progress. He's amazing. But that's where we are supposed to get in terms of progress is that, in that we are supposed to grow so that people in this world can tell we are made in his image 
and not be forced to try to fashion something else that never could be in his image. He said that mankind was made from one blood and that they were called and set, he set boundaries for them. And this is another thing. See, he said, our God is one who cannot be contained. But man has boundaries and set times. This reminds us on a regular basis that we are not him. That there are boundaries to our being. There are limits to our, our abilities. We get tired. There are some things we just run up against that are so difficult, you just say to yourself, I can't take it anymore. I can't go on like this anymore. Yes, you can, but you can't. And God brings us to the, to the border of our boundaries where we hit a brick wall regularly. Why? So that we might understand the end of ourselves and the beginning of him. Might access his power beyond ours. Access his wisdom beyond ours. Access his patience beyond ours. When we run out, we should run into him. He set up these boundaries. Why? So that we would understand how far we can go and then we begin to seek him. That they might seek him and grope for him because he's not far. God is not far. He's close by. He's preaching to these Athenians, letting them know they have an opportunity here. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And then he winds up by saying this. Therefore, he has called men every place to repent. What is repentance? In this exhortation, he says, repentance is that which causes us to turn. Turn from our idols. Turn from our wayward ways. Turn from everything we know that's wrong. To make a 180 and choose to follow him with all of our heart. To call him our Lord. Not just in title, but in function. That it's not just something we place over our lives theologically. To, to identify with the Christian faith. But every day we're saying, Lord, I want to obey you. What your word says I want to do, help me, oh God, please. I've done my will for long enough. It got me to where I am. I'm not doing that anymore. I am turning from everything I know to be selfish and is built on my foundation of how life ought to go. I turn from it, all my wrong, and I choose to follow you for the rest of my days. What you say, I will do. What you tell me, I will, I will follow. Where you lead, I will go. I'm yours for the rest of my days. That's what repentance looks like. And he says he's given everybody, any place, all men, the opportunity to do that. And it is a great gift. Repentance means turnaround. Whenever a company turns around, doesn't everybody get happy? If a team, football team, NFL, went 0-7, and then all of a sudden... They wound up 9-7. People say, "Woo! 9-7 ain't nothing to shout about. That is nothing to shout. Do you know in San Francisco right now, they had a horrible season. Horrible. They won like six games, seven games, I don't know. But they, they went two and nine. Two and nine for the first 11 games. And then they won their last five. You know San Francisco's going nuts. They're going nuts. They're all happy. Woo! We won the last five. 
Why? Because they made some things, they, they made some changes. They got a new quarterback, and he made a few more plays. Remember, in the NFL, it's only about seven or eight plays that make the difference between a win and a loss. That's it. He made a few more plays than the other guy, and he won five in a row. So there is such optimism over a team that went six and nine. They were terrible, but there's, yay, they made a turnaround. That's what God has given you. You've lost for most of your life. For most of your life, you have lost. Anytime you had the opportunity to do right, you chose wrong. You gravitated towards sin. You lost again and again and again. And, and, and the devil loved playing you. He played you. He played you like a drum. He loved playing you because he knew he was going to win. And then you get born again. And all of a sudden, you say, oh, wait a minute. I don't like losing. I, I got I to change. I gotta, how do I win here? And you start ramping up. You get coached up by people who love you. And you come to church regularly. And now you start to say, wait a minute. I don't have to, be, I don't have to lose. For the, my point is, all of a sudden, you, you may have lost 10,000 times. But all you need is one victory. You, you say, oh, I'm in good shape now. Well, you're one in 10,000. I know, but it's one. It's one, it's one in one. It's a turnaround. It's a turnaround, and everybody rejoices with a turnaround. Why? Because the past doesn't matter. Oh, it plays into your future in that there's some things you may need to do, may need to fix, but it does it doesn't matter with respect to your future, meaning what you've done in the past will not affect what God wants to bring you into. That's why the turnaround is so great. You may not be able to wipe out everything with your victories that you've done, but you now have victory, and you can begin to build on that so you can get more, and so encouragement fills your soul. And with your past, what you do is you give that to God. Say, Lord, I blew it. I Forgive me. And the beautiful thing is, is, is that he's got a huge eraser. <laughs> and he wipes out all the consequences of your past. Wow. That doesn't mean that there's nothing for which you will not have to give some degree of, 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 of um, uh, um, uh, restitution. Thank you. Yeah, you might have to do that. But with respect to the account of sin now being yours for which you must pay, eternally, done. This is what turnaround means. Paul said, repent. Repent. Come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the message we need to bring to a world that has no hope and doesn't have a God. I'm begging you, extend the kingdom. Examine your world well. Observe and don't consume. Make sure you engage your world by having some information that you can bring to the table and always have a therefore for the issues that you see are wrong. And then exhort. Tell them how they can begin the process of making substantive change so their life can be different. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. <clears throat> Please help us. <clears throat> Inspire us to be what we should be for a world who desperately needs you.